0: We're going to continue in a section of First Timothy three that we've been camped on for a couple of weeks. And uh Pastor Bill wants me to finish it, so that's why every time I talk to him, he goes, <laughs> Can't make it back. And in all reality, he wants to be here like last week. So uh he's hoping the doctors will clear him to come back, but Barb and I are saying no, right? Or maybe you want him to get out of the house to get back to So keep him. In prayer, of course, he is desperately trying to get back and doing what he loves to do. So, I'm wondering if you've noticed this in your life, because I've certainly noticed it in mine. And this is kind of an easy question. I know how you're going to answer it if you answer it to yourself. I wonder if you've noticed that sometimes it's not whether or not we know how to do something, it's really whether or not we want to do something. There is a a breakdown in not skill so often, to do the thing that we know we're supposed to do, it's really a breakdown in motivation. So many of the things that are presented to us in our life are things that we could kind of, we already know how to do, or it wouldn't be too hard to figure out how to do, but the the thing that plagues us, the thing that shuts us down is the fact that I just don't really want to do it, for a number of reasons. I'm freaked out by the prospect of doing it, or I'm just tired and I'm lazy, or... You know, I I don't want to risk what's required in order to pull such and such a thing off or something. So often, there's a gigantic gap between being able to do something and being willing to do something. And of course, we're talking about being able versus being willing to teach. And I'm hoping that this morning, I challenge the part of you that isn't quite sure you want to be a teacher, If you go back over the last couple of weeks, you know what we're talking about is not exclusively someone who stands in front of people and delivers a point of truth or tries to educate a group of people. That may not be for everybody. I might have mentioned to you before in one of my speech classes in in college, one of my best friends uh, going way back uh, joined me for a few years of college and we were in the same speech class together. And I knew I was like, I don't know how this dude's going to do a speech class because he is terrified in front of people. Sure enough, every time we had to present the speech, he was either late or he was absent entirely. Not because he was trying to skip class. He was trying to make it. Just couldn't get out of the bathroom from vomiting all morning long. So he hated to be in front of people. And so it would be very unfair for someone like me to come and try to guilt him into, God said that you should be able to teach. So get up in front of those people and do it. It's not for everybody. But there's an aspect of our lives that we share with other people that is teaching. And that's what God is calling us to. So I want to go counterintuitive. If I'm trying to drum up more assistance, trying to get more teachers here at Faith in a lot of different avenues and a lot of different areas, if I'm trying to get more, don't you think that if if I'm marketing myself right, I'm going to lower the bar to say, if we make it easier, then you'll want to do it. But we haven't always found that that's the case with people, do we? Teachers are still not the highest paid people in the country. You know, our school teachers aren't. Uh, They have to go through uh, rigorous training. They have to go through evaluations and reviews. They have to go through all these things for their credentialing and stuff. And there's not a huge promise of giant jumps in pay, but yet they do it anyway because of sometimes the intangible and the tangible reward of teaching the next generation, of, of communicating something that they see the light starting to go on. And that's the reward for them. And so it isn't always this, this financial thing. And so while the the goal, while the uh, the requirement for being a teacher is often very difficult and very steep, it still brings out people that want to go to school, even each and every year, to become a teacher, because there's something else that it, it meets in their life—a a, a need, something that they want to accomplish, something they want to provide for the rest of society. Now, what we've been guilty of in churches is we have a tendency to lower the bar in order to get more people to teach. You know, it's been the history of churches all over the place that if there's a need in Sunday school, you just go grab sister so-and-so and say, I need you to teach. And she's like, I've never even seen a flannel board before. I don't know how to put the little sticky of Joseph up there. And we say, that's all it right. right. It'll, it'll work itself out. The Holy Spirit will guide you. And so the church has a tendency to lower the bar, lower the expectation, lower the requirement to be a teacher... And yet it still doesn't mean that we have churches that are busting at the seams of people wanting to teach. And so please don't misconstrue anything that we're going to say here this morning as somehow lowering the standard because so often the Word of God gets little demand for skilled teaching and effort, and that is not the way to go. So if we're going counterintuitive, we're actually going to spell out what the bar is. We're going to talk about how difficult it is to be a teacher, and I'm just counting on that motivating you, so good luck with that. Last week from Paul, we heard that we're to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that we, it says he, but so that we will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's a fairly tall order. There is a severe weight to teaching when you're teaching the right things and you're trying to do it the right way, and specifically when it comes from Scripture. It's a difficult thing to exhort in sound doctrine. You have to know what good doctrine is in order to be able to build people up in it. It's a challenging thing to go against people that are spewing error and lying about the truths of God if you don't know what those truths are. So there's a high requirement to knowing what God wants from His people, what God has spelled out to His people and the truth that He is is sharing with the world. And the church should put as much emphasis on the skill and delivery of what we're to teach as the world does. At least in terms of paying attention to our content and how effective we are at delivering it. I'm not suggesting that our Sunday school teachers now have to go through external evaluations and all these kinds of things or that our small group leaders have to do all the same things that you would if you're applying for a job in the school system or Anything like that. But we have to understand that lowering the bar or watering down the process or just saying, hey, we got a willing, warm body. Let's put him or her in front of people and trust that the Holy Spirit will just lead the way is foolishness. It's irresponsible. As we said at the outset, there's going to be various forms of teaching. There's going to be the lecture formats. You're going to have somebody, hopefully, every single Sunday that stands before you and, and shares the Word of God from a, in, a, in a corporate way, in a way that doesn't give a lot of room for response. Sometimes it gives responses where it's not needed or wanted. So watch what you say when you say it. Uh, sometimes it puts people to sleep. That's the reality of these bigger venues and... Uh, so many different personalities and lifestyles and different things that are going on in your background and all that sort of stuff. Lecturing is a form of teaching, but that isn't solely what the scriptures are talking about. Remember what we said in the context that Timothy was receiving his instruction from Paul was something that the, the instructor, the teacher, was more familiar with sharing part of his life with the student to going through the process of life together so that the principles translate in the right context. There's also uh, going to be a need for group leading. So some of you may be called on or being or, or be led by the Lord to be in front of a smaller group of people. Maybe the hundreds in a crowd isn't your thing, but you say, I can handle about 10 people or so. Or I can teach a, you know, a Sunday school class of 15 or something. There's those kinds of venues for teaching, and we're always looking for more help along those lines. But even in a way that this this, uh, teaching could be done in in what is, I think, true discipleship, which is one-on-one, you have a a limited amount of people that you can invest your time in, you can't necessarily be uh, available for 15 or 20 people to the degree that you're actually sharing a portion of your life with. All of us are being called to find that student around us. And to live a life of example, live a life of instruction, live a life a step ahead of somebody else in order to bring that person along. And that's what the scriptures are calling out uh, are spelling out for us of what discipleship really is. So there's going to be all these different forms. And so I'm giving you all of those so you can't wiggle out. Okay. And you might say, well, this, I can check this one out, Super Bowl Sunday anyway. I don't have to listen to the rest of this. Because you're probably not going to anyway, unless 10 or 15 of you don't care about the Super Bowl. You're saying, look, I don't need to listen to this because I don't plan to be up. I'm like Brent's buddy that's throwing up in the bathroom to get up in front of people and stuff. So in order to eliminate that group, maybe a smaller group is somebody you can relate to, or maybe it's somebody one-on-one. But it should be one of those three. So don't pigeonhole discipleship. All forms of teaching are necessary in the body of Christ in the development of God's people throughout the centuries, all of those things happening at once have this rounded out or balanced approach to bringing people closer to the glory of God. Now, the reason why we still have official roles partly is for accountability. We need to know who our teachers are going to be week to week. Some of us get all romantic and say, man, I bet in the early church they didn't have a Sunday school roster. I bet if you are just led to teach something, you could show up and the apostle would be like, sure, man, plug in, go for it. And then we start coming to Paul and we see how organized and kind of locked down his process is. And I don't think even Paul would show up here and say, I, I got something to say, move out of the way. I think Paul, the apostle, would show up and say, hey, what's your structure look like here? How, how can I fit in? How can I be a blessing to you? You let me know and I'll follow your lead. There's order and there's structure. And so sometimes being a part of an official teaching capacity, if you're if you're leading a group or you're teaching kids or something like that, it's accountability for you and it's predictability for the church. We know that you'll be here. We know that you'll participate. We know we can count on you. But you also know you have to be ready to present. And there's a, there's a, if we're being honest, there's an accountability that comes with that. I want to be uh, walking with the Lord. I want to be filled with the Spirit in order to present what He wants me to to folks. But not all of our teaching opportunities are going to be in an official capacity. We don't have a title for everything that the Lord is calling us to do in the life of the believer. So let's not pigeonhole discipleship. Let's be available to go where the Lord leads me. What I'm hoping to do is call out the part of you that knows there's more to life than what you're doing or currently not doing for the Lord. I'm hoping to spell out opportunities that you can see and pray about and you can respond to even where you sit. Hebrews 10 verses 23 through 25 tells us, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let's focus on this next verse. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So, whether or not you teach in a formal setting or a casual one, the idea here is to shake your tree a little bit and say, Lord, how am I being motivated to think of ways? To, to, to encourage other people towards love and good deeds. What is my role in seeing that other people actually perform that? And so there's a few guiding principles, whether you're teaching in a, in a big setting or whether or not you're teaching one-on-one, whether or not you're a parent and saying, I really got to tackle this issue with my kids and I'm not sure how to go about doing it. Um, there's a few guiding principles that I want to share with us. And I've come up with five because that's the limit of my expertise I think that we'll probably get through three of them this morning. And if the other two come about, then fine. If they don't, then the Lord didn't think they were worth repeating. So uh, we'll deal with that a different time. So let's just do this this morning. Let's go through a few of these um, principles. But please do me the favor and do not just merely think of teaching in the context of somebody who's standing up and lecturing. I'm beating that like a dead horse, I know. And by the way, why do horses, why do dead horses get beat? I've never understood, some of you that are used to horses, maybe you can explain to me later. never understood that phrase. Regardless, I don't think it's all that profitable, so I'm not going to do it. The first thing I'd caution you to do, whatever your context is for being a teacher, is make a plan to grow for yourself first. You've been on an airplane before and the stewardess or the captain or somebody, I guess it's the captain, it's been a while since I've been on a plane, uh, get, captain gets on and, of course, they do it like this. And they say, uh, we would like uh, parents, it's going to be a little more formal than this, we'd like parents to realize the oxygen masks that drop are for them first and then assist your child in the event of emergency. Is that anywhere close? Not even close, Right. So uh, the idea being is that if you take care of the necessity of making sure you yourself are able to act, if you take care of that first, it's going to be it's going to go against your emotions. It's going to go against your logic at the time, because as a parent, you're going to think sacrificially first. And they're saying, look, we get that. But at the same time, if you're running out of air, you'll be no help to your children. So put the mask on first. And it's the same with approaching teaching. It's the same with being available to lead God's people. Psalms 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now listen to this. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Basically put, how, how do you expect to be able to be in a scenario where someone's counting on your direction, counting on your, your leadership, counting on your answers, and you've got dried, withered up fruit that is just falling off the branches because you yourself haven't plugged into a source that's going to nourish you. That's why the tree example that's used in Scripture is so basic, but it's so profound at the same time. Because as a tree, it it sinks its roots and it gets deeper and deeper to find its water source. So is the expectation that God's people are going to, to dig their roots into something that's going to feed them and feed them first. So many people are trying to teach, they're trying to lead on yesterday's victories on last year's blessings or on, on the last decade's lear, uh, examples of what they've learned, what God's done in their life. And the Lord is saying the only kind of teaching that's ever going to produce any real fruit is that which is feeding right now on the source. If that's maybe a little too green-piecey for us, then let's, let's go with the example of Jesus. The very Son of God has said to us in Luke two fifty two, Jesus grew... This is summing up sort of his childhood and, and the development. Unfortunately, it's about all we get from the time that Jesus was young up until the time he uh, was about 12. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God in all the people. So the very Son of God grew in wisdom, which was uh, basically applied as an intellectual growth, a little deeper than just mere intellect. But he did get smarter, which is weird to think about, the Son of God, who we know from Scripture is equal with God, grew in intelligence. He physically grew. He got stronger. He grew in favor with God, which is a weird thing to wrap your head around. That there was spiritual growth taking place with Jesus Christ, that he actually got holier, if you will. In other words, he got more set apart for God's use and God's, God's uh, mission and plan the more his years went on. And he received favor with men. He became more accepted, if you will, with others around him. There was a social component to his growth, even as people were around him. And so this mystery, this tiny little verse really can mess with our heads because we're thinking to ourselves, if the son of God had to go through this process, why in the world would we think that we're exempt from needing to grow in the same balanced way? We have to be careful of the danger. We've talked about this as we were going through the, the list of 1 Timothy 3 and we are saying uh, the qualifications for a leader, if we take any of them in isolation, we say, that's what I'm focused on. I'm just going to be that dude or that girl right there. And we chase that down in isolation. We have a tendency to, do, uh, to, to take on a pursuit that s- serves our interests, that serves what we think are our needs. And it becomes a, a self-centered pursuit Uh, when not done in harmony or not done in balance with these things. Wisdom, stature, favor with God, favor with man. We're all meant to be done in harmony. Take any of these things in isolation and you end up with a giant ego or you end up with something out of balance. If you say, I'm just going to get smarter and smarter and smarter, but you have no, no desire for spiritual growth or you don't let the Holy Spirit arrest your thinking and to use that education for his purpose, then you become, you know, an inflated egghead and people don't like being around you because you have all the answers and that sort of thing. If you think oh, I'm just going to worry about my physique and I'm going to work out and that's all I'm going to do. And it has no application or no sharing or no harmony with your spiritual growth or your social growth or something like that. Then you walk around as like, I guess inflated is kind of the, the, the theme, Ben got me going on all that, but you walk around as kind of this inflated, you know, uh, meathead kind of guy or something, and uh, you, you end up turning people off because it's all about you and your own pursuits a favor with God, if you pursue a spiritual growth that you think can be absent of service or some kind of social component, then what you become is somebody like what Timothy was dealing with in his church. Remember last week we talked about the fact that that Timothy had a real problem on his hands being the young, young inexperienced guy because he had a lot of um, uh, spiritual blowhards, people that were holier than everyone else because they could sacrifice whatever. Anything that came from the flesh was an evil, and only, the only thing that was ever accepted uh, was that which came from the Spirit. So they were willing to go without meals. They would flog their flesh. They would do all these things because we have a deeper relationship with God than you. So when we pursue what we think is holiness in isolation of some of these other characteristics, it ends up still going to our head, and it's not real spiritual growth. And of course, we know the dangers of of thinking that we're just going to grow socially with no balance of, of wisdom or no balance of favor with God because we have a world saturated with social activity now that has gotten stranger and stranger by the year, hasn't it? So I say again, if the Son of God had to go through a process of a balanced growth, then why would we think we're exempt Here's what part of the danger is in all of this. I'm going to ask for this illustration to come up a little bit. When we are just taking in, this box represents, I guess, our, our pursuit for growth or who we are. When all we're doing is just taking in, taking in and taking in, then we have a tendency, like I said, to make this pursuit about us. I think about even the good things that you want to do in life. Think about even the challenges that that we throw out there that are are, are good for spiritual edification. You hear us every early part of the year say, uh, you should make a plan to read through your Bible. You should get more familiar with God's word this year. Look back at what didn't work last year and, and make those adjustments. Haven't you noticed that sometimes we still get into this thing like, I just want to be able to say I did it. I want to be able to check the box. I get into that flow. It's like a great accountability because I get to check things off. But at the same time, if I'm not careful, it becomes about what I want to be able to say at the end of the effort. What it does to make me feel like I'm connected with the Lord. Like the Lord really cares that I checked off all the boxes. He wants me to pursue him. He wants me to chase down his word. He wants me to absorb what I can in the scriptures. It's nothing wrong with that discipline. We're going to continue to encourage it. But once it becomes all about you and once it becomes all about me, it's doing us no good. Uh, benefit, getting us no closer to the Lord. And so this is a, the, the, the model that happens. We just soak in, we just soak in, we soak in. Let's go to the next one. In fact, what really should be happening is everything we're taking in is for the purpose of it going out. If you've ever had to prepare a lesson before on a on a subject that you weren't quite as familiar with, but people were counting on you to teach it, there's no better retention possibility than you actually having to give it to somebody else. Those are the lessons that have a tendency to stick with us. I don't know about you, but I have to, start, I have to reread books all the time to remember, what in the world did I read? I, I try to remember what that chapter was covering, or I'll be reading something that will give me this idea, and I'm like, oh, that's great, I can't wait to apply that and everything, and I'll just keep on going because, again, I've got to check off my list. I read the whole book. And then when I go back, I've got no idea. But the moment I'm soaking something in and I get a chance to talk to somebody about it, I get a chance to share this with somebody else and they start feeding off of that and going, hey, that was actually good. I've been praying about that a lot myself. All of a sudden it takes root and it anchors itself into my soul. When I'm taking in for the purpose of giving it out, it changes my attitude. It changes my outlook, but it also changes my retention. It changes my learning process as well. So if the scriptures are true, and I believe they are, then we should be planting ourselves by, by a stream of water that's going to feed our roots, that's going to nourish us. But the point is, and the purpose is, is, so that our branches, do I look like a tree? Our branches will have fruit that other people can pick off of it and grow from themselves. Very basic concept, but please understand what we're targeting here is the fact that our flesh, the wickedness of our hearts, gets in the way of this pursuit. And something happens when it starts coming up the roots, and we just want to kind of hang on to it right here. Get away from my tree. Get away. Stop picking my fruit. Don't bother me. But the nature of people is that we're people. Pretty profound, right? We need direction, we need assistance. We need somebody who cares enough to say, okay, Lord, grow on my tree the kind of fruit that others can use, but don't let me put a fence around my tree. I want people to come and pick it, even if it's the people I don't really originally want near my tree or something. Lord, make me available. That's where this basic teaching of being available for the Lord's use that we think would be, ah, it's pretty normal. I hear that all the time. That's where this starts to change a little bit is when we say, you know what, Lord? I really do limit my availability, to let the fruit be picked, to, to see my role in nourishing other people. And so the first thing I'd say is that we have to be available to grow ourselves. And that growth turns into something that impacts the people around us. So my second point to you would be learn how to be infectious. Become the kind of teacher who has that fruit sort of just so abundant on your tree and so available that people just can't help but notice that it's there. Remember we were talking about that didactic teaching method, that, that, um, that goal-oriented, I'm going to share some truth with you, but I'm not just sharing it for the sake of you going, oh, that's pretty interesting, that's great, good, I got a note down on it. But instead there's something pouring out of my teaching that says, I want you to do something about it too. You know, if I'm if I'm somebody who cares about, you know, the pro-life movement and I'm saying I want to rescue babies, if I get a few minutes to talk to you, you're going to sense that this is what I'm living for. You're going to sense that this is what's going on in my life and you're going to hear it dripping right off me that I want you to get involved too. And that's the kind of teaching method that I think is happening here. Become an infectious instructor. If we go back to our passage in Hebrews 10, verse 24 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. If you think about an infection, which is a great time of year to think about infections and viruses and things. Think of, think of a, a virus or think of some kind of infection just kind of coming in. What does it do? It invades it starts to reprioritize your life. You know, the things that you wanted yesterday, now you don't want because you're focused on getting rid of this one thing. Or a lot of times when we get really sick, we lose our appetite, right? Well, I wish I had lost my appetite for the last, you know, several years. But now all of a sudden this thing comes in and it invades my space and it starts to take over everything. It the things, reprioritizes the things that I really want in life. You know, you can be comfortable with the temperature around you one day and the next day you can't get enough blankets on top of you. You could have a full appetite one day and the next day you just don't even want to look at food. It's just not even appealing to you. That's what an infection does. Passion for one thing diminishes the taste for many other things. And part of our problem is that we have this uh, lethargy that grows in our life because we haven't fed the passion that the Lord is trying to plant within our soul. And so when we're not chasing down that passion, when we're not finding out what we're created to do, when we're not uh, making ourselves available to serve the Lord in these particular ways, we have a tendency to become this vacuum and we soak in a lot of other stuff. And everything else outside of the Lord just kind of diminishes our strength. It starts to diminish our appetite for the things of God. It makes us feel cold and shivery and empty and useless. God is saying, if you allow my, my calling on your life, my, my, uh, my passion that I want to build within you, if you allow it to take hold, it'll start to push those other things out. The things you couldn't wait to have yesterday will have no interest to you today. There'll always be a battle back and forth. It'll wax and wane. It'll come and go. But predominantly, when you give yourself over to the Lord, it has a tendency to push those things out. Infecting also means total discomfort, doesn't it? All the aching of the bone this is a great Sunday, isn't it? So pleasant. Especially those of you that are trying to get rid of stuff and everything, you're like, know, Yeah, great, thanks for let me revisit this. But infecting means total discomfort. Everything hurts, everything aches. You know, the scriptures also translate the word motivate. The uh the English translation is also to spur one another on. Think about what a spur does. Makes you say ouch. So if we are going to be faithful to Hebrews ten twenty four and we say, Okay, Lord, how do we spur one another on? How do we goad one another and say, come on, get moving, get motivated, let's go. How do we get people plugged in? How do we challenge each other to stay in the fight and stay in the hunt? An infection is something that's totally uncomfortable, and don't you always hate being around the person that's just got a burning passion? That's all they ever talk about. Well, there's a reason for that. Because the Lord set them on fire. You can't stick your hand near the flame and not get a little burned. There's a few goals that should be in our teaching. If we're going to be infectious, we have to be training people how to think. We have to be willing to stretch the brain. Don't worry. If you stretch your brain, you're not going to wear it out. Doesn't everybody tell us we only use about 10% of our capacity? Actually, 10% of our capacity would be a borderline genius, I believe. So I don't know what that makes me, but, you know, you stretch the brain. Don't worry, it's not going to wear out. It's not going to fizzle out that way. Because new disciples need to rethink their position on almost everything. So the teacher, the person who's living life with him, the, pe- the person that's trying to be lead by example and trying to go before him is always thinking, look, my disciple, the person who's following and, and, and living uh, beside me through life is somebody that probably has a, a wrong angle on most things because they've been practicing that wrong angle ever since they were born. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, here's a new pair of glasses. Now you see things differently. So the disciple maker, the teacher, is always on guard that the the way that the disciple is interpreting life is typically through a wrong filter, but it is growing. The presence of the Holy Spirit brings about that change. So you're teaching people how to think. You're teaching people how to learn. We've said this over and over again. We've done some counseling training classes over the years. And a thing I've said to our, our counselors and trainees, I said, the greatest thing that I can do for you if we accomplish anything together is to create in you a hunger to continue to learn because most of what you'll apply on how to p- help people in a personal setting is something that you've studied on your own, something that you've interacted with somebody on your own and you've learned from your mistakes. So if I can help you become a lifelong learner, somebody who's willing to keep teaching yourself through study then that will have the greatest impact on your counseling. And I think that holds true with everything that we try to teach. But also, our goal in teaching is to teach people how to work. You know, something that messes with our Christian compassion is this idea of don't do for somebody else what they can do for themselves. Isn't it confusing? You know, you're trying to grow in your faith. You hear messages from the pulpit. You hear, you know, uh, authors from books and Christian radio and songs and all these kinds of things really lead us to believe that we should be living lives of service and availability and and living pretty much on our hands and knees and making sure that other people's needs are met and being available. And all those things are true, yet at the same time, there's a strange balance of if we continually bail people out... and, and, and take the burden off of them to learn how to do what they're supposed to do, then we just keep coming to the rescue. And why would we be motivated to do that? Probably because we like to check lists off. I did my good deed for the day, as we like to say. I served the Lord today because I came through and I met that need, and that's satisfying and that's rewarding. But a disciple maker is somebody who says, I want to be available to do that, but I also don't want to get in the way of what the Lord's doing for the person who needs to learn that lesson. We're teaching people how to work. So, we make a path. We make a plan to grow first. We plant ourselves by the river. We also strive to become infectious for those that are around us but also on the heels of what we just said, we are going to teach for the movement of the disciple, the activity. Romans 8.29 says, For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to be like His Son. We're constantly supposed to be improving. Now, I want you to just think about this statement. We've said it over and over again here at Faith, but it's something I've been able to anchor in and, and kind of stick with. That God doesn't expect us to be perfect but he does expect us to grow and to change. Fortunately, the only perfection that God expects comes from the sacrifice of his son. And that's what we just celebrated around the Lord's table. So he says, if you've trusted in me, the perfection that you're ever going to have has been applied to you by the son. But growth and change is something that we're all expected to do. And we beat ourselves up. I have people over and over say to me, I'll say, how did the week go? What did you do differently? And that sort of thing. Well, I still failed at this and that. But the more I listen to the story, the more I see they handled things a little bit differently than they would have the week before. They grew in certain areas. And so we're able to point out to them. See, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit is that there's pieces of your effort that you gave to him. And he turned it around for his glory. We expect that if we do things for the Lord, that all of a sudden the life that we are living gets cleaned up. All of our efforts pay off the first time. All those things. But it is not the case. God does not expect us to be perfect this side of heaven. But He does expect us to grow and change. Philippians 2.13 tells us, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Good learning is always going to produce Good action. Just show for my example here, if you would, those outward arrows once again, if you could, just to get that image of this is what we're talking about here is that good learning, the things that you take in, they will produce you moving out and they'll produce those that you are teaching to move out as well. It's the nature of being a student that sometimes we're going to over celebrate the short victory of knowing something new. We just got smarter. And it, has a, it gives us a tendency to kind of relax and say, okay, I did my part. I learned something new. But there's a caution in 1 Corinthians 8.1, in the latter part of the verse, it says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love Edifies. Let's show this more chaotic picture, if you will, because what ends up happening with knowledge and how it produces an arrogance is, is we start to take in and absorb and we just soak it all in because I've got to get smarter, I've got to get sharper, I've got to know more about God in order to be more pleasing to Him. And we just take it in and we take it in and eventually what happens is that box starts to swell and it starts to explode in a very unhealthy way. Don't think of it in terms of like, wow, that's how growth happens. The, the way that growth happens and the way that movement happens is, is learning comes in and it's constantly flowing out. It comes in and it's constantly flowing out. If you're trying to bottle it up, it's like someone's shaking that bottle and saying, go ahead and pop that lid and see what happens. It's not a pretty sight. It's a mess. The teacher needs to follow up on action and not let the learner get lazy and arrogant. You're always measuring. Now listen, we've talked about this. Now you have to go out and do. This is one of the major reasons why the best teaching is personal, one-on-one discipleship and not just corporate. It's easy for us to walk out of a corporate setting thinking, I learned something today. That was great. If we're not careful, we won't listen for, what am I supposed to do with what I learned today? And what happens in one-on-one accountability, what happens in one-on-one relationship, is you see when the other person isn't living it out. Or you being the student, you understand i got to. I got to answer to my disciple maker next week or next month or something. He's going to ask or she's going to ask if I've actually been doing what we talked about. And so that's why that relationship spurs us on to love and good deeds. So let's be mindful of these things. We're going to end there with some of these principles that will uh, apply to all forms of teaching. But in conclusion, I just want to, mention a few things. The teaching needs of the, of the body at faith certainly are the kind that have a title, certainly are the kind that we build rosters off of. We have small groups. <clears throat> we have kids church. We are attempting to build a counseling team. Much of what we do in counseling is, is sporadic and it's not highly advertised just because of the fact it's not consistently available. But a lot of what we need, the teaching that we need in faith, certainly does fill those roster spots. But we also need aisle to aisle discipleship. What traditional churches would say, the kind of discipleship you do in the pews, but we don't have pews. So what you do in the chairs, what you do in the relationships you make before and after church, what it turns into for sparking a friendship and following up with people and extending yourself. Having ability does not address your motivation. You all are capable with saying hello to somebody. You all are capable with saying, so what do you do for work? Or how long have you been coming to faith? Or any of those kinds of things. It's the motivation factor that holds us back, isn't it? The ability comes from training and experience. We can present all along how to do it. But only you can gain the experience by putting one foot forward and following the Lord in this way. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer this morning. God, as we continue to understand what makes disciples, I pray, God, that you would challenge us, first and foremost, to be willing to be disciple-makers. I pray, God, that we would see some area that the gifting that you've given to us, Lord, could apply in. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see some next step that would help us to understand that you can really equip your saints to the things that you call them to. So, Lord, help us to go out on a limb. Help us to step out in faith and do the thing that we're called to do and give the result over to you and to do it for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.